Hey, it's Sarah and Kristen. Welcome back for another episode of the Into the Wee Hours podcast. So happy to have you back for another episode, or welcome along if it's your first time here. Another intro being recorded on Zoom with another sickness. <laughs> My parents are actually in town. Dad's not feeling very well. We have tested. There's no spicy cough, but just to be cautious of everyone's health and safety, we decided to do this over Zoom just for the intro. Before we kick off, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and sea where this podcast is being recorded on, the land of the Gubby Gubby people of the Sunshine Coast. We pay respect to their elders past, present, and those emerging. Just as a quick reminder, we have a Patreon account. As expressed before, we really want you all to know that we absolutely love bringing episodes to you fortnightly, as it really is a fun, creative outlet for Kristen and myself. Patreon itself allows us to continue to cover the costs for the podcast, such as monthly hosting, website, and equipment upgrades, to bring you the best quality possible, mostly so that you can hear any and all contributions from our dogs. Shout out again to Bear, Moose, and Ness, who, as you know, sometimes make guest appearances. With that in mind, every little contribution makes a huge difference to us. For only a gold coin donation each month, we would be so stoked to have you as a patron. It's pretty easy to find and sign up online at patreon.com forward slash into the wee hours podcast. A huge shout out to our existing patrons and all of our listeners. We love you all. If donations are not possible for you at the moment, we absolutely understand and respect that. Another way that you can help support this podcast and make it easier for people to find us is to please go on to whatever provider you are listening to us right now and leave a review. These reviews really help to make us more findable for listeners who are just like you and allows us to spread the voice of the everyday adventurer even further. Thank you to everyone who has left us a review already. In today's episode, we speak with my friend of over 10 years, Canada-born adventurer and outdoor educator, Saul Kamal. Back when I jumped the corporate ship, so to speak, with his wealth of paddling experience, Sol trained me up at Sydney Harbour Kayaks to become a professional kayak guide. Sol is a wealth of knowledge and with a few nudges from the universe has made his passion of outdoor adventure his entire career. With a super interesting background, starting out in Toronto, working as an archaeologist and in museums, Sol took a fateful trip to Australia, where now, 16 years later, he still calls home. Sol gives us a really interesting overview of what it's like to work in the outdoor space through some of the ups and downs. With experience in activities such as kayaking, mountain biking, abseiling, quad biking, and general outdoor education, Sol has guided many people through what would surely be a life-changing experience for them. We spoke to Sol about his evolution into making a career out of the outdoor space as well as, of course, touching on some of his incredible and very lucky solo and group adventures of his own. If you love the outdoor space or have been on any sort of tour and had wondered what it is like to make this a career, you will no doubt get some great takeaways from Soul in this episode. Let's get into it. Cue the music with Kristen.
welcome to episode 25 of the Into the Wee Hours podcast. Oh, we're getting up there. My name is Sarah Pendergrass and I am joined... Oh, what's the noise? The rain. Ah. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm hearing a lot of background noise. Okay, it's pouring with rain here. I'm joined by my co-host, <laughs> Kristen Vorton. Hello. <laughs> and we are joined via Zoom today by a good friend of mine, Sol Kamal. Welcome, Sol. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're stoked to have you on. Yeah, I can just hear all this like background interference and I thought there was something wrong with our setup, but we are in the middle of a massive storm right now. So let's hope it doesn't cut out. So we will, I mean, we'll get more into your story as we chat, Sol, but just as a quick intro, I met Sol, um, gosh, I've forgotten which year, like probably almost a decade ago now. It's a bit scary. Wow. Um, in Sydney. Yeah, about that. Yeah. So I, I was working um, in corporate, in marketing for Vodafone. I decided I'd had enough of that world. I went on a kayak tour with Sydney Harbour Kayaks and was like, oh, I love this. Uh, I would like to do more of this. And then one thing led to another and I ended up working for Sydney Harbour Kayaks. And part of the deal, given that I wasn't a paddler, was I would do some marketing work for Shannon, the owner, and in return, I would be trained as a fully qualified kayak guide. And that's where Sol comes in. So Sol trained me up and we spent many hours on the water, in the office, on the beach, all over. <laughs> so yeah, welcome. Thank you for joining us. We, um, we tend to start off with a quick fire round of questions. These are sometimes quick fire and sometimes not so quick fire. And it's just really to warm you up, warm us up, and we'll find a little bit about you through this, okay? Okay. Who's going first? Well, don't you have to ask the... Uh... Yeah, I realized I didn't put an important question here. Okay, so the first question for you, Sol, is pineapple on pizza. Hell's yeah or hell's no? Yeah, Definitely. <laughs> Like you had to think about I, it. You did have to think about it. Is there any trepidation behind that answer? Are you sure you don't want to change? Well, I was thinking, are you referring to a Hawaiian pizza? Because uh, it would probably know if it was like a godfather or something like that. True. It can Context. be whatever you want. It's just pineapple on pizza. So Kristen's massively anti-pineapple on pizza. All our guests seem to be yes, apart from one. And Kristen's developed this thing that it's just a Queenslander thing. So now being Canadian and you've said, yeah, it's like, yeah, 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 it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. If it's a Hawaiian, it needs the pineapple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So we know that you've done, obviously, quite a lot of paddling. Uh, it is only going to be released in the audio version. We are currently on Zoom. However, in the background, Saul has a kayak that's literally laying up <laughs> in the corner of his room. And beforehand, he said there's literally no other place for it. So you do quite a bit of paddling. What's the most memorable place you've ever paddled? Uh, I would say... Uh, the Whit Sundays is the most memorable place. I did, um, oh, I must have been about a three week trip sea kayaking from island to island through the Whit Sundays. Yeah, nice choice. Yeah. I was thinking you would choose like somewhere in Canada, but of course, go for Australia. That's cool. Love it. All right. So, with that in mind, for the rest of your life, when you paddle your kayak, this is a double sea kayak. Someone else has to be paddling it with you. Who do you pick? <laughs> they can be dead or alive, oh, anyway. Um, oh, dead or alive. 
Uh, I used to own a dog. I don't right now, but hopefully in the future I will. And uh, that would be, I think, uh, you couldn't get a more loyal paddler. I think that would be the good way to go. Great answer. Although, are they really going to be pulling their weight? (laughs) 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 Well, it'll be a small dog. It won't weigh much. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So there's not too much to, uh, yeah have to do extra work for. Um, now, it, Sarah's given me a little bit of a background of you. Lots of adventuring, lots of places that you've been. What's your favorite adventure snack? Oh, favorite adventure snack. Uh, I would have to say uh, blueberry pancakes. There's a bit of a story behind that. And it's like proper blueberry pancakes rather than mistaken blueberry pancakes. Do you want to elaborate on that? (laughs) All right. So uh, when I first got into the outdoor industry, I started as a sea kayak guide and I was working in Northern Canada. And um, the guides, these were multi-day kayak trips um, where, um, you know, it's quite, quite catered for the customers and the guides would prepare all the meals for them. So breakfast, uh, we'd get up a bit earlier and uh, we'd go out and prepare meals. And one of my favorites to prepare was pancakes with blueberries because in Canada, you got uh, raspberries and blueberries in the summertime growing in the wild. So you can go out and pick them and then add it to your batter and make delicious pancakes. And I had an assistant guide and I sent her out to pick some uh, blueberries. Now, the thing about Canadian ecology where I was in the in the Midwest is that um, you've got juniper berries that they make gin from. Uh, juniper berries, juniper bushes grow right next to the blueberries and the berries of uh, the juniper bush look identical to blueberries to trick bears into eating them and then the bears wander off and when they, uh, when they poop, um, those juniper berries are nicely fertilized, carried a distance away and another juniper berry uh, or bush grows. Um, however, juniper berries are as hard as a pine cone and they taste like you're eating pine wood. So when our clients, you know, when, a, when the other guide collected all these, I threw it into the batter and then I cooked them up. Of course, you're going to serve your guests first and they're munching away on these pancakes going, what kind of pancakes are these? I'm like, it's blueberry obviously and they're like really are you sure and then i took a bite and i realized what had happened oh Uh, dear no well i guess if they had picked the junipers but you had done something different rather than pancakes it would have been a pretty good morning (laughs) yeah they got they got some blueberries but i think they got more very solid very sappy juniper berries yeah, fair enough. So oh, they were a bit confused. <laughs> yeah. So good, real blueberry pancakes. That's an awesome choice. Perfect. All right. So next question. Yeah. You come across a genie in your travels. The genie grants you three wishes. There are some rules to the wishes. Kristen, remind me what they are. You can't bring anybody back from the dead. You can't make anybody fall in love with you. And you also cannot wish for any more wishes. What do you ask the genie for us all? What do I ask the genie for? And I, it's three wishes? Yeah. Oh, that's quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I ask the genie first and foremost for 
people to be able to think with a bit more clarity in this world and be more in tune with their spiritual side. Because uh, I think a lot of things would, a lot of problems that we're currently having and, and have had and will be having be resolved by that. And then I guess part of that second wish is that people get more attuned to their to nature, the, the actual, um, you know, the actual cradle of their existence um, and not be so uh, separated from it, disconnected from it, that sort of thing. And uh, I guess my third wish would be uh, for people, including myself, to focus on that, being happy. Nice. I love it. That yeah. It's like a beautiful world to live in, that's for sure. They were great wishes. Great. Good wishes. job. Again, like most of the time when we ask these people, they're like, what? <laughs> and they take a little time to think yeah. about it. But yeah, those were really nice. Thank you. And the last one for the quick fire questions, we always ask this for our guests. Um, we had a sports psychologist on back like episode. I really should look it up like six or seven or something. So a little while ago, his name's Luke. He's a sports psychologist. Um, and we were talking a bit about um, gratitude being a little bit external. It's a really great practice to have, but sometimes we lack that internal practice of kind of supporting ourselves. So Sol, give yourself a compliment. Give myself a compliment. Uh, during this whole rainstorm, I thoroughly cleaned the inside and outside of my house. <laughs> Excellent. Great job. I, I, was, I, I was productive. <laughs> Productivity yeah, yeah. in the face of uh, adversity. <laughs> yes. Nice. Improvise and adapt. Yes. Good one. Well, you made it through the quick fire round. Thank you very much. Awesome. So to kick everybody like off. Um, again, this is the first time that we're having a conversation and probably a lot of our listeners might not know who you are. So we always like to open up the floor to our guests in as many or little words as you'd like. A little bit of an origin story about who is Soul? How'd you get to be where you are? Just anything that you'd like to kind of talk about. Um, well, I was uh, originally born and raised in Toronto, Canada. And um, uh, I've always had a passion for the outdoors and uh, not necessarily had the opportunity because um, uh, I don't think my, my parents were that keen. They're, they're more like luxury-oriented people. So um, kind of uh, adapted and improvised. Uh, and um, got into that. In, in Canada quite a bit in my teen years and then continued on with it. I uh, had a, a number of different careers, but um, eventually uh, I was actually about to start an adventure tourism business, which can actually show you the, the logo for it, which is right there. Ooh. Um, adventure North. Yeah. And I was about to, I was going to start that and I thought, oh, before I do that, I'm going to do a bit of traveling. Um, famous last words before, you know, before I locked myself down, I had a lot of, um, a lot of air mile points because I used to work as an archeologist and I traveled back and forth between the Middle East and Canada. So I had an opportunity to come to Australia and I was just traveling around 
And then I landed a job at Sydney Harbour Kayaks. They uh, offered to actually get me a work visa. And I thought that was a fantastic opportunity. And uh, it all went from there. I stayed on and um, thought, well, instead of starting my own outdoor adventure business, why not manage one here and kind of get paid while I play and play with someone else's money rather than my own. And uh, it's all um, it's all snowballed from there. Yeah, nice. And tell us a bit about what you're doing now. So now I am a, uh, after working for a number of different companies over the, I've been in Australia for about 16 years now, going on 16 years. Uh, after working for uh, a, a number of different um, outdoor industry companies, I uh, just started up my own little sole trader business where I um, basically provide my skill sets as an outdoor adventure guide to other companies and sometimes not that often but sometimes a little bit of consulting as well for for instance uh re- not too long ago it was a school interested in starting up their own in-house um uh outdoor education program but really didn't have the experience to to know how to go about that so um so yeah that's basically what i do now i have uh uh, one main client that I work for the vast majority of the time, which is pretty convenient. But um, from time to time, I step into uh, other adventure guiding roles for other companies or schools, that sort of thing, as the opportunity arises. Yeah, nice. And it, I mean, I know you as a paddler, obviously, but you also like mountain bike, climb, do all sorts of stuff. What sort of activities are you working in at the moment in that guide role? So uh, the main activities that I do, uh, I still do the kayaking, um, mainly uh, flat water or ocean kayaking. Um, I'm also uh, an abseil guide. So that seems to be a pretty popular one amongst a lot of outdoor companies. Um, the, my main client uh, also uh, has a big quad bike fleet. So I'm a quad bike guide as well. And I'm also uh, head of that, that company, head of the department for outdoor education. So a lot of Duke of Ed programs, um, school programs with mainly high school kids uh, going on multi-day trips and um, uh, teaching them about uh, outdoor bushcraft, outdoor skills such as camping, navigation, that sort of thing. That's awesome. And you kind of mentioned earlier that um... – you know, you weren't necessarily born into this adventure lifestyle. You kind of had to create this niche for yourself. That's a lot of adventure, you know, activities to put on your resume. What did you kind of grow up doing? Was it mountain biking, I assume, from Canada and and hiking and things? What else were you kind of doing in your childhood? Yeah, well, uh, from an early age, I actually think I got um, a bit of appreciation for the outdoors because my my mother's an avid gardener, so you know I would help out. She'd ask me to help out with uh, with in the garden, that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, I'd go for walks all the time. A lot of time on my, <laughs> I spent a lot of time on my own when when uh, my peers were out messing around playing street hockey or something like that. Um, so I'd go out for for bush walks, um, for hikes, um, and also at quite a young age, I think about twelve years old, I got into 
riding dirt bikes, motocross bikes. So that was a way of getting out in onto the trails and going and exploring the forest, that sort of thing. And did that all through my teens. And um, then I got into uh, into mountain biking and also got into kayaking kind of at the same time in my late teens and kind of focused on that. And, um, and also uh, got into camping uh, because my parents really didn't, it wasn't part of their kind of background, their cultural background. So my friends as, as teenagers in my senior years at high school would invite me on camping trips, that sort of thing. And I'd have that opportunity. So got into that and then started doing that kind of solo stuff where I do multi-day kayak trips on my own and try to get out pretty, pretty remote. Um, there was one particular occasion when I was stranded for about three or four extra days than I intended to be, uh, because it was a blackout along the entire Eastern seaboard of, uh, of Canada and North of North America, Canada and the U S and the, my friend who had actually uh, shuttled me up there could not fill his car with fuel because there was no electricity. And that's how the uh, petrol was pumped up to the, to the Bowser. So because there was no electricity, he couldn't make the drive back to where we had agreed to rendezvous. And uh, he thought he was going to arrive and find a, find a kayak and some and a skeleton by, <laughs> by the side of the river um Why? so a lot of extra yeah so that was Russian food that, that was a bit of an yeah yeah wow and so in ter- i mean you like touched on and i actually had forgotten that you'd worked in archaeology so you went from that career path to being in the outdoor industry and i think like i would love to, for this conversation to look at what it's like like what the reality is of being someone who works in the outdoor industry because I'm sure that we have lots of listeners who are really adventurous they're probably in professions thinking god like I wish I was an outdoor guide abseiling and mountain biking and quad biking and stuff so I would I would love to look at like the pros and cons of what that actually looks like but how did you end up going from archaeology and the work in the Middle East to guiding? Well, I got my degree in archaeology in University University of Toronto, and then uh, as soon as I graduated, I applied for a job, and there was a, an, an excavation project in the Middle East that was uh, being run by, by a Canadian university. So I went there for, for a few years and worked on that, and that was spectacular. That was outdoors. That was really my thing. The whole, I think the, the underlying thing for all these things I've been doing, whether it's archaeology or, or um, outdoor guiding, is is exploration and adventure, and so that really fit in um, with my with my passions. Um, but eventually, I came home uh, and I switched uh, paces a little bit and went over to the museum curatorship and collection management side of things, a more academic side where you're in an institution. And you're working at, on the exhibits, on the artifacts, that sort of thing. And it was interesting, but it was much more desk-oriented and not quite quite my cup of tea. So um, after about 10 years, I, I thought, because what would happen was in the, I'd be working in a stuffy, um, a, a building which is kind of a, a, a huge secure vault that would hold all the um, artifacts um, that the museum didn't have on exhibit on display. 
there's for any particular museum, there's much more, there's much more uh, artifacts than what they actually have the space to put on the display. So I would, um, after the end of a, a work day, I would race home in the summertime, Canada having very long um, daylight hours, you know, sunsets at, at uh, 10, 30, quarter to 11. I'd race home, race, actually race to the, um, the local sailing club where I was a member and I had some kayaks and get out on the lake, get out on the water as quickly as I could. And I thought, you know, instead of trying to fit this in to this spare time that I've got and the recreational time, why not try to, um, try to make it a career, make it something that I'm, if I'm passionate about it, make it something that I'm doing all the time. And there was some very, I would have to say, I guess you would say very woke uh, signals that I took to to make that decision. Do you want to tell us about those? Uh, I guess, well, actually, the whole thing about getting into kayaking, just as a, as a personal thing, um, I worked at a, at a, uh, a um, bicycle shop where I was uh, worked as a, as a, as a bike mechanic fixing mountain bikes and whatnot. And the owner actually got some canoes and kayaks in. And I thought that that looks pretty cool. And then a couple of years later after I had not been working there for a while, but I thought I'm going to buy that yellow kayak in the corner. So I went and bought it. I had no idea what I was doing. Got out on the water. Couldn't even control the direction <laughs> that the kayak was going. Just went around in circles constantly for, for a couple of hours. Um, and, uh, then one night I had a dream that I was paddling a yellow sea kayak along a beautiful, very light sanded, like a white sandy or very light beige sand beach on turquoise waters. Some, somewhere quite tropical, not, not what you experience in Canada. And it's funny because uh, Sydney Harbour kayaks, the, their corporate color, basically all their kayaks, uh, when I was working there, were all yellow. And along, it's located along a beautiful stretch of, of a beach, which is very, you know, light colored sand. And the waters are, you know, crystal clear blue in Middle Harbor in the Sydney area. So I think that's kind of a, I feel that that for me was a premonition of my mind or my soul saying, well, this is where you're going. Um, you just have to, you know, it's, 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 coming around the corner in the arc of your life you just can't see it yet and then when it came time to uh to make a decision about starting a new career path and and actually uh attempting to start a business uh which is a bit of a, a scary a daunting sort of prospect i was visiting my brother he lived in california at the time and um uh while he was at work i went for a walk on a really nice beach um, and uh, right beside a cliffside in, in an area called South Bay in, in LA. And, um, you know, there's lighthouses up at the top of the cliffs, that sort of thing, pelicans flying by. And I was walking along this particular beach. It wasn't a, you know, a beautiful soft sandy beach. It was covered with these round fist-sized cobbles everywhere. And I'm fiercely thinking to myself, what do I do? Do I go back to my old career? Do I, do I, venture into this business that could, you know, financially ruin me if I don't, you know, pull it off, that sort of thing. And 
I have no idea why, but I looked down and there was a, a fist-sized cobble about the the size of every, you know, the billion other cobbles stretched along that beach. And I picked it up and I turned it over. And in this plain beige cobble is an, a gray inclusion, which to me looks exactly like the shape of a kayak paddle. So for me, that was the universe going, look, it can't make it any clearer for you. I'm about to throw this cobble at your head yeah. if you don't follow, you know, your your passions. So I'm going to lay it at your feet and, you know, make it pretty obvious. So, you know, sometimes I second guess myself and think, oh, coincidence. But, yeah, there's just something about it that I think is a bit uncanny that uh, if I were to ignore it, it would it would be it would not mean it. It's kind of like the universe is saying, "I won't leave you alone until you actually take the clues. You you yeah, heed the clues that, that I'm giving you." Yeah, talk about synchronicity. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. That's a cool I absolutely story. Love that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And so then the rest was easy. You set up your business, and oh no, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I I was. A good way there, I developed, you know, researched and developed a business plan and, you know, um, already had a, a, a vehicle and a kayak trailer. I was going to specialize, of course, in kayaking. That was my thing back then. A uh, kayak trailer and an entire fleet of kayaks and everything. And uh, um, so I was getting pretty close. Uh, I was kind of um, looking at the marketing sides and, and really hammering it out over the course of an entire winter, which in Canada is pretty long um, in terms of the business plan and putting stuff together. I needed a bit of break and that's kind of what um, brought me to um, taking a little bit of time off and coming to Australia. Nice. And the rest is history in terms of you loving being in Australia now, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I think you described yourself as a climate refugee before we came on air. So I thought that was a good description. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like um, you obviously did quite a bit of work, like building up this business plan and things like that. And I'm sure you, you know, you mentioned that you have been managing um, somebody else's business, playing with somebody else's money, right? Um, but at the end of the day, sometimes it does feel like you know you've made this whole life your passion, or sorry, your whole passion, your now your whole life. Um, but then sometimes you know you've got to think about all right, so we need this many kayakers on this day to make this sort of profit and stuff. Does it ever kind of get muddled for you, or is it always still a really big passion? Um, when I was actually working in, you know, uh, as an employee in a operations manager capacity, that was really uh, I was quite a lot behind the desk managing the staff and and making everything sure things rolled smoothly. Um, And that's kind of why I took a step back because it was kind of like, hey, wait a minute, this is all the administrative side of things. And yeah, it is the outdoor industry, but, you know, administration is administration and sitting behind the desk and taking phone calls and booking people in and making sure that all the logistics were going, uh, you know, running smoothly. I uh, was taking away from the, the the thing that I was passionate about, which was getting outdoors and sharing that experience with other people. 
Um, so that's why I, I took a step away from that. And funny story, actually, uh, when I was working at Sydney Amber Cox, uh, you know, I, I've been there for more than 10 years and um, uh, we had a whole, you know, uh, the beach staff that helped people set up their kayaks for them um, when they rented kayaks or going out on their own. We had the guides who would take out the, the kayak tours and we had the instructors who would teach kayak lessons, that sort of thing. And one particular day, uh, one of the guides fell ill, um, you know, uh, wasn't, you know, gave us a call and said, hey, look, I'm a bit under the weather. I can't make it today to teach that lesson, that kayaking, intro kayaking lesson. So, uh, you know, uh, I have the qualifications. So I jumped in um, uh, to teach it. So, you know, we didn't disappoint any of our clients. And uh, the other guides actually were, when they arrived back from the tour or whatnot, they were like, what's Saul doing on the beach teaching people? He doesn't, he's not a kayaker. He doesn't know anything about actually instructing. They didn't realize that I was actually uh, a, a, a Paddle Canada level two sea kayak instructor because uh, they'd never seen me out on the water. So that kind of that kind of woke me up to, yeah, it's, it's, I'm missing out on the very thing that I got into the, into the industry for. Yeah. Cause when I worked at SHK or Sydney Harbour kayaks, you, I guess we paddled a lot because you were teaching me. So we would go out before work early on Sydney Harbour and Sol would teach me and then we'd get into trouble for being back late at the shop. Um, yeah. <laughs> And then I'm trying to think you, you guided on some like bigger tours, but you were very much in an operational role, but we had a staff paddle every week. So I feel like we still paddled and you took me on some stupid ocean paddling thing to see whales at one point, which was like yeah, that's right. 10 million hours of paddling. I'm trying to keep up with <laughs> Sol, who's like super strong paddler and I was not, and we saw no whales. And to make matters worse, we were sitting on this beach having lunch because like I was starving and dying and pretending like that I was really good, but actually I was dying. Um, and a kookaburra stole my sandwich. And Saul, seeing this, laughed and then quickly ate his sandwich so the kookaburra didn't get his. Well, I was hungry. <laughs> oh, so yeah, I was, I was aware of how strong a paddler you are, but I think that's like it is a really interesting point, and I think a lot of people listening who love adventure, whatever it is, would be thinking, "Oh, if I make this my profession, do I lose my passion? Like, do I lose the joy that I have?" Because it does change your lens on it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, one of the things is, you know, when you're when you're an outdoor kind of person you your proficiency is is quite quite good and you know whatever it is that um activity that you're doing you know you're you're passionate about that you you get quite a bit of um practice time enjoying it doing it perfecting your skills that sort of thing um or improving your skills maybe not perfecting and so your ability level is uh, uh quite a bit higher than when for for the major part of the outdoor industry, um, the the clientele will be people who don't have the equipment to access these activities, or are they're they've kind of always thought about it, but you know they don't have the the proficiency, or and they don't have the time to invest in 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 doing it, but they do want to experience it. So 
they come to a company and say, hey, I want to go out on a kayak tour. I've never tried it before. I've done it very little or I want to go abseiling and I certainly don't know how to rig up all the ropes and that sort of thing safely. So you'll operate at a, a for the most part, at a level that is far below, um, I won't say far below, but definitely below your own proficiency level and what you would be feel um, comfortable doing on, on your own recreational time, on your days off. Um, so yeah, that part of it, you're not going to get the, the thrill level as you would you know, when you're, when you're doing it for yourself. And also, um, so there's a bit of routine there. And uh, that routine comes from, yeah, you're going to be doing a, a, a repetitive plan. You're going to be doing uh, that sort of activity. It's not going to be um, always um, exploring new things. It's going to be kind of a, 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 well, a well-developed program that is repeatable um, so that you can, you can, the, uh, your clientele can have a good, good experience and everything works seamlessly and everyone knows what they're doing, that sort of thing. Very little trial and error. Um, everything's nice and safe. Um, so yeah, those things can get, definitely can get quite routine. So, um, my approach, and I've actually, uh, some of the younger guides, cause I'm a little bit long in the tooth. Um, the I sometimes have to What's that? Or in the beard these days, though. <laughs> yes, yes, I've been growing the beard. This is my lockdown beard. <laughs> I started it during the lockdown. <clears throat> so, uh, so I remind the other, the younger guys who sometimes might start getting a bit jaded. I'm like, look, first of all, stop and look around you. Like, look at the view. And I get customers saying this to me all the time. They're like, oh man, this is an amazing job. And I'm like, yeah, I like the view from my office, and I'm at the top of a cliff on an abseil session and it's absolutely spectacular so those are the little things you have to you have to keep in mind you have to make an effort to to break out of that kind of sense of routine and go yeah but i'm still outdoors i'm enjoying my passion who's got you know who does this and gets paid for it um and you kind of get a bit of a cue from the client they're going you know they're kind of like saying to you, they pay you for this? You do this? Many, many times, very often I get asked that. I get asked, is this a full-time gig for you? Do you, I mean, do you make ends meet with this? Because this looks pretty damn good. So uh, you have to focus on those things. You all have to focus on the people. Um, that's uh, something that can be a bit of a challenge at a time, but also, you know, you go, you have your friends, you go out, you enjoy each other's company, um, yeah, like-minded people getting into the outdoors, that sort of thing. But it is, for me, it's one of the huge rewards of meeting new people uh, every day. And also, you kind of have to put yourself in their shoes um, to take yourself out of the routine and realize that what you're doing, which is just run-of-the-mill, you know, I, I don't want to say run-of-the-mill, but, you know, it's it's something you're you could do with one hand tied behind your back. You know the routine, you know the schedule, that sort of thing. And the customers are like, this is, for many of them, a bucket list moment. And it's hard to relate to uh, because, because it's something that you're so accustomed to and, and adept at in terms of skills and, and knowledge and experience. It's hard to, to relate to. You're terrified of sitting in a kayak? Uh, 
because you're terrified it's going to flip over and you're going to drown. Well, that's, that's not going to happen. That's never happened. And, or you're terrified about stepping over the edge of this cliff, thinking you're going to fall to your death sort of thing. So for many people are overcoming big obstacles, big fears, big challenges in their life. And it literally is the bucket list moment for them. Whereas for you, it's, it's a, it's another day at the, at, at the office. That's like so much that you just said was reminiscent, like, and I can reciprocate those feelings on a lot of things. I taught at a summer camp for four years. So in between my college years, I would go up to, you know, this beautiful lake. It was like very classic American summer. Um, And the kids would be there for a week or two weeks. And, you know, we as camp counselors were there for 10 weeks, I think was the whole summer. And then plus an extra couple of weeks and things here and there. And, you know, you could be stuck doing your umpteenth, you know, beginner lesson of stand-up paddleboarding or outdoor adventure skills or ropes course or something like that. But then the kids who are like, this is amazing, and they've got this stoke on their face, totally brings you back to some of those mundane moments. Because, yeah, we would go out and we'd kind of, like paddleboard all the way across the lake and then we jump off cliffs and you know because we were stupid teenagers <laughs> and, but you know doing some of that stuff was really really great when the kids brought out that excitement because for yeah it can get really mundane and just the normal stuff every single day and you mentioned the people there which I can totally reminisce about so I'm here in Australia because of my husband Phil who I met at a summer camp like some of my best friends were my summer camp friends But another hard part about the industry that doesn't get talked about that often is it's a very transient industry too. So you meet these wonderful people and then sometimes at the end of a season, you say goodbye. And after four summers, like I was so privy to it. I'm like, I can say see you later, but I know that I'm probably never going to see you again. And sometimes that's really hard. Have you dealt with a lot of that stuff over time as well? Um. Not that much. I, I think one of the something I'm fortunate about is I've actually worked for companies where the turnover wasn't too drastic. Uh, uh, working for the sea kayaking company in Sydney, we did have our you know our our regular staff who were you know lived locally like myself and had been there for many years and we're going to continue to be there for many years. We did get overseas a lot of overseas backpackers that had the qualifications and it was fun to meet them and work with them for the summer. Uh, Maybe I'm a bit cold hearted. I would never get too attached to, to the backpackers knowing that, you know, they're going to be going and they'll want to go off uh, after the end of the summer and go and explore, you know, they've got a one or two year working visa. They're going to go want to explore and, and, and check out, new things, that sort of thing. So, And that's totally um, part of your experience in the industry, right? Is like, don't get too attached to these people. I'm never going to see them again. Let's just have fun. And then, you know. Yeah. I think when I think Uh, of SHK as well, I think the seasonal people, you have a bit of a different attitude as someone who is long-term, like permanent at the business versus a seasonal person who knows they themselves are also just coming in doing their thing for a season and then leaving as well. So I think that's where there can be a bit of a disparity as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, You do have, and I've experienced that working in Canada. I worked for obviously for a couple of outdoor uh, adventure companies and it was the same thing. You'd have uh, a a large portion of the staff have been there year after year. That's their, that's their gig. That's what they do. Um, That's part of their, um, their, career 
sort of thing. If not, if they don't work there year round, then if it's a seasonal job, it's a, it's a something they return to year after year, like clockwork. And then, yeah, you'd have your people that would come and go that sort of thing. So it'd be a bit of a, of a dichotomy there. Yeah, fair enough. And I think coming back to, so talking people, but coming back to your customers or your clients or whoever you're working with, you touched on it a little bit there, like it might be a bucket list thing, but I also think there's a really important conversation around I know you joke like, oh, it's not rocket science or I'm not changing lives or whatever, but actually the skills that you're giving people and the way that you're empowering people. So someone who is scared of falling and abseiling, um, it's, that can be a life-changing moment for someone. Yeah, it can. I mean, like particularly abseiling, for instance, uh, it's surprising how many people we get that sign up to it who are, have an absolute terror of heights. Like we walk up to the top of the cliff and you're nowhere near the edge of the cliff, but you've got this fantastic view and they're, they're frightened. They won't let go of the metal bridge that, you know, is the, is the entryway to the top of the cliff. And it's like, you know, it's, it's 20 meters to the edge of the cliff. You're not going to somehow fall off the edge standing here. So it, it is surprising how many people push themselves to, to face their fears. It's quite it's it's quite um, uh, impressive or enviable that that people of their own accord will will sign themselves up to something they know is is going to be a huge challenge for them, and then taking them through it and literally the the sense of accomplishment not so much in the activity itself. It's not like you're walking away going, "Hey, I know how to abseil now, and I know how to rig up everything." Of course not, but it's. It's like I was always terrified of that. That was my biggest fear. And I faced that that huge obstacle in, in life. I faced that massive fear. And it's kind of, um, it, it seems like to me, there's this kind of new horizon that opens up for people when they overcome that fear and realize that, as they say, the, the fear is the greatest part. Is it's, it's the, um, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. Um, and they, and yeah, and same thing with when I was working as a kayak instructor and taking people from what we call zero to hero, where they're like, they're literally telling you, uh, you know, they're uncomfortable and like, I don't know if I can do this. I, I really don't know. And you're trying, you're trying to reassure them. And as they gain one skill after the other, they're like, the, the change from that lack of confidence to, man, I can actually do this and I can do it in just with a bit of good instruction in an incredibly short period of time. Like I'm actually getting this. This is not the, the massive daunting hurdle I thought it was going to be. I'm actually got, I've got the wherewithal to improvise and adapt and, and, and absorb this new skill and, and go with it. Yeah. And I think you, so that's like the customer's experience, but you said something there, which I think is so important. If, if you are someone who is thinking of becoming a guide or an instructor, as you said, good instruction, like the fact that you can get that person to walk the 20 meters from clinging onto the metal bridge to then stepping off the edge of the cliff is testament to you, to your communication and to the rapport that you build with your client. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I know like when I started guiding, <clears throat> I was excited to learn to paddle and that was cool and I was confident doing that. But actually the bigger thing is, oh, I'm taking these people out for four hours on the harbor and uh, they kind of have to like me or at least not want to leave me. Like it's a big deal, right? Yeah, you definitely have to be a people person. Um, and that's something that can actually develop. I've seen it with other guides too that are very soft-spoken and um, when I was working with them and they were kind of getting into the industry, I would say, you know, you have this very soft spoken kind of character and persona, but pretend that you're an actor, you know, get out there, be boisterous, be, you know, get, get, you know, um, project your voice a bit, that sort of thing. Um, and I'll have to say that I was the same way when I was in archeology, span actually, I remember a day that uh, one of the volunteers at the dig site was telling me, <clears throat> commiserating on how, <clears throat> oh, you know, this particular person over here, they feel sorry for them because uh, they're quite a timid person. And the, the, the dig site engineer is this old gruff guy who's kind of picking on that, that young, young guy who's very soft-spoken or that guy over there is a little bit overweight and he's struggling in the Middle Eastern heat and the director's kind of, you know, um, uh, prodding of why he can't work a bit quicker, a bit harder. And I was like, what are you talking about? I don't see any of this. I have no idea what you're talking about in this particular person. Well, so that's because your heart is like a cold stone. <laughs> you don't sympathize and see these things. So I think I was kind of, I was like that. I was kind of like, I don't really care. You know, it's not my problem. But over the years and changing careers and that sort of thing, you, I did have to develop those those uh, sensitivities and those skills of putting yourself in other people's uh, shoes and, um, and yeah, kind of... Um, uh really yeah putting your mindset to to try to understand what they're feeling and the for me the key thing is no pressure i'll tell people <clears throat> we have a great saying which is everything's challenged by choice if you don't feel comfortable doing it don't do it and the other thing i always tell people is look if you're here to go for instance abseiling um this isn't the bar exams for you to accomplish becoming a lawyer or medical exams for you to be a doctor. This is not going to impinge on the trajectory of your life. This is for fun. And if you're not having fun, take a step back, take, take a breath, come back another day if you want to, that sort of thing. So uh, I've realized that the real focus is on um, not, you can't push anyone to accomplish your agenda, you have to be sympathetic to their agenda and their their uh, their timing of when they're ready to do something. And if you're supportive of that, most of the time you will get people who initially are extremely apprehensive. And even in your own mind, you're thinking, I don't really think this person's going to pull it off. I don't think they're going to do it. And they'll surprise you. They'll actually, with that, with that encouragement and with that support, they will. Yes, you do get people who that at that particular session still cannot overcome their fear and um, pull back, but um, that's that's okay too because it's you, you do it when you're ready to do it. There's no point in forcing yourself. And my belief is, if it's a, a terrifying experience, a bad experience, well, you're, what are you going to get from that? What are you going to? What is that 
person going to accomplish? And as a guide, what have you done? What, what have you facilitated? They haven't facilitated anything. They're probably signing off to the outdoor adventure aspects of their life. It's going never again. I'm not going to do that again. Yeah, I would assume a lot of people would probably come in with a lot of trepidation. It, like, that's probably not the normal person. Yes, a lot of people come in thinking, oh, I'm selling. I'm a little bit nervous about this whole experience, but they're pretty keen. So that would have, I hope that's a very rare occurrence that someone is having zero fun, unless they're being dragged along or something. <laughs> that yeah. does happen. Yeah, you yeah, get, I was like, about I, to say, I've seen it. Oh, bummer. Guys, what are you even saying about for activities? <laughs> I just feel like I've seen people on kayak tours by the end of four hours having not necessarily that much fun. If in bad conditions or like falling out with their partner or they arrive. Expectations, like managing expectations sure, is so yeah. important. Like we would have people arrive to get into a sea kayak wearing stilettos. It's <gasps> like there's been a bit of a misunderstanding as to what's going to happen here, you know, and also you stop for your picnic halfway and they're wondering when, the, when the bus is going to pick them up for the return journey. Like it's like making sure people are briefed and understand what's coming. Right. Or a cocoa bear comes and takes yeah. a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't, I don't think Sarah was realized she was going to be paddling for eight hours. That day. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a pretty long day to be fair. Type two fun, probably. But, <laughs> But in in my defense, the whales were there. It's just that they were like on under the water rather than very than deep underwater. Well, that's generally what whales do: is they hang out underwater. I thought yeah, I was exactly. going to have like a whale, you know, jumping out over the bow of my kayak, and no, nothing. We we just chose the wrong activity. We should have been scuba diving, not kayaking. <laughs> true. True. Well, and you know, we talked about how you, you know, when you're guiding, you kind of are at this lower level, just teaching everybody else as well. But I understand that you're quite an accomplished adventurer yourself. So, like, talk about some of the stuff that you've done on your own, maybe some of these solo adventures since being in Australia. Yeah, I mean, uh, I do quite a bit of stuff on my own, and I, I have um, ever since I was younger because I and. Quite some time ago, when I was in my like early 20s, I really made an attempt to uh, bring friends along who weren't that, you know, not as, I guess, uh, adept or as passionate as I was uh, about the outdoors. So they were like, hey, cool, that sounds that sounds great. And so what I would do is I would try to make it as as easy as possible for them. Um, and, you know, I'd, apply, uh, I'd supply all the equipment, that sort of thing. But it always seemed that people were like, when you made it too easy, they were like, okay, so um, uh, how long are we kayaking for today? Because uh, I've got to do something in 12 minutes or, you know, 20 minutes. And it's like, you just got out. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a 15 minute activity. There's a, a bit that goes into it. So I guess that kind of made me a little bit jaded. And I, I did a lot of stuff and still do a lot of stuff on my own because it's just, you have more flexibility. You can choose it's you don't have to really arrange how you know schedules or anything like that it's just your own schedule that you're working with and your own equipment and that sort of thing and um so there was uh um for instance uh, a really fantastic trip that uh that i really enjoyed was a solo trip up um, kangaroo valley 
there's a dam called Telawa Dam, and there are no motorized uh, craft allowed on that on that body of water. It's only paddle craft that are allowed. So we got this pristine body of water. And um, as I was paddling up that uh, dam, um, up that body of water, you're paddling up through a a sandstone, red sandstone canyon that's getting narrower and narrower. And uh, that was spectacular experiencing that. Uh, that was, a, I think, about a three or four day trip. And um, I'm just trying to think of other ones that I've, I've done over the years. Um, not in Australia, actually, but uh, my folks still live in Canada. So each time I would go to visit them, I'd m- make it a point to stop on the West Coast for about a week. And I do a solo kayaking trip um, up this uh, uh, fjord in North Vancouver that uh, is amongst mountains that are, you know, 15,000 foot peaks surrounding you on all sides. So it could be 30 degrees summertime down on the water, you're sea kayaking along and the mountains around you are all snow capped. Um, so that was another spectacular one. I, one of the little, little tricky things about going alone was I had a day where I was like, ah, you know, I've done quite a bit of paddling. I'm at my campsite. There's a waterfall over here. I think I'll go explore this waterfall, like hike up the up the um, up the mountainside, uh, and uh, kind of go to higher elevations of the waterfall. And I got a bit nervous because after a while, I remembered I'm in Canada, and there's I'm in the part of the world where there are grizzly bears like walking around, and I'm by myself. So I kind of got the, as we say, the heebie-jeebies and and headed on back, but. Um, and there was another time, once again, in Canada, in, in Banff, I was hiking along in the summertime up to a tea house out up in the mountains. And uh, I'm hiking along and all of a sudden the section of um, pine forest that I'm walking through is obliterated. All the, all the, um, the trees are snapped uh, over, snapped in half like matchsticks. And I'm looking around going, what in the heck's? happen here strong wind or something it's really weird it's just in this one area that's a few you know 100 meters in in width and then i realized this happened when this when it was there was still snow up on the higher elevations this is the aftermath of an avalanche and then as i gained altitude on that uh that mountain pass um the the buttress the huge uh uh, amount of snow that's kind of like a giant snowdrift overhanging uh, between two peaks of a mountain. You could hear it because it's heating up in the summertime, cracking and that sort of thing. And you're looking at it thinking, if that goes, I'm like right in the path of, of a massive avalanche, even if it's summertime, that sort of thing. So there have been um, uh, really interesting experiences uh, on my own. Um even when in my archaeology days, I remember I would travel around on my days off and give you an example, myself and, a, and another fellow traveler, a, a young British guy, we ended up in the middle of the Syrian desert with no transportation to get home because we wanted to check out this ancient location right on the Euphrates River that is the border between Syria and Iraq <clears throat> uh, called Dura Europis. And we got a ride on the bus and we asked the bus driver, you know, could you please let us know when we get to do your Europas? Because we were aware that this was not a tourist site. This is not something that tourists went to. And we were driving for a few hours through the Syrian desert. And then there was this 
this intersection with this road going off into the horizon, into the Syrian desert. And the bus driver stopped and opened up the bus doors and just said, Dury Europus, get out. <laughs> we got out and this bus drove away and we're like, how in the heck are we going to get back? So interesting things like that, that you you never know where your adventures are going to going to take you. And those are the most memorable ones. I've done a one thing where I went to Cuba and uh, I stayed in like an all-inclusive res- resort and it was really luxurious and, you know, you're pampered and you're in this five-star plus resort. But I got bored after three days and rented a motorcycle from this local plantation owner across the street and went bombing around uh, this area of Cuba called uh, Guadalavarca and, you know, went to a, a, a clinic for unwed pregnant, you know, women uh, and to a school and and bought Cuban cigars from, uh, you know, just this peasant that was working on his farm, that sort of thing. And that's the memorable part, not the part where you're sipping pina coladas uh, sitting by the pool. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there, you never know where your adventures are going to take you. And those those bits are the memorable bits. How about when adventure doesn't go quite as planned and you end up being medivaced? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, you know about that story. So I was guiding in, once again, in Northern Canada on a multi-day sea kayak trip. And um, we had um, a large dome type, if you can imagine a dome uh, tent or let's say a half dome tent with a big screen uh, because the mosquitoes in Canada in the summertime are pretty bad. And so if you want to have a, a you know, any sort of um, rest and peace at, at dusk when you're having dinner, we have this, this dining tent called the cave, which was quite portable. Um, and we'd set it up and have, uh, you know, some camp chairs in there. We had a, a little portable table and we had, you know, uh, camp stoves to, to cook up the food, that sort of thing. And so one day, first thing in the morning, I get up to make the coffee um, for the clients and we get, I get the, um, the kettle of water boiling. Uh, it was a good, must've been a, a two liter at least size kettle. And this gust of wind came out of nowhere and uh, tipped the tent, which tipped the table, which tipped the boiling water and the burning stove onto me. So I experienced uh, the uh, wonderful experience of second degree burns and immediately jumped into the lake. That was a good part. There was a nice cold lake to reduce the, the progress of the burning, but the it was quite a remote area so uh the other guide actually uh you know we had all the important safety equipment and we had uh, uh vhf communication radios and uh they were trying to get a signal out um but it was kind of bouncing off the cliffs nearby so this guy took their walk out and uh, kind of used it as a dish to bounce this signal from the antenna of their radio past the uh past the cliffs and then we got a signal and eventually they sent a, a medevac helicopter to to come and get me wow what a story jeez and it's not the classic you know if you had told me oh i got medevaced from a burn you would have thought it was from like a campfire or something but that is like definitely the elements working against you a big gust of wind wow yeah yeah and you do i mean that's the most serious thing that I've ever been involved with, and I'm, I'm a bit thankful actually 
for the for my own sense of um, uh, my own, I guess, guilt or uh, I don't know how you put it. There's a word for it, but my own conscience is that it happened to me um, rather than to someone else. I think I would have been in terms of my conscience would have been felt absolutely horrible, horrible, horrible about it. Um, I was even cracking jokes when the paramedics were checking me over because they asked because the, the the stove landed on my on my chest and burned through the synthetic shirt that I was wearing and all the water poured down my leg from like the thigh down and they were asking trying to be as diplomatic as they could they were like were you burned anywhere else and by anywhere else we mean in the crotch area and I'm like no Otherwise, I would have been highly disappointed. And they're like, well, at least you got a sense of humor. <laughs> but that, 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 that summer, I was actually, because um, that would happen in the early summer in Canada. And so I was out. I was out for the season. I had, you know, bandages all, you know, uh, all down my leg and on my belly and that sort of thing. And that was actually the catalyst to come to Australia because I had missed out on a whole summer. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, you know when you've got all blisters and stuff from these burns and you've got to manage that, keep it clean, that sort of thing. You're basically just sitting around and you're not, you know, your mobility is not that great either. So you're not kayaking, you're not mountain biking, you're not doing anything. So I missed out on a whole beautiful Canadian summer, definitely not guiding. And then I thought, that's it. I'm going somewhere warm. You know, I'm going to go to the other side of the, I'm not going to miss out on a summer and go straight into autumn and then winter. I'm going to go travel somewhere and get a bit of, summer experience now that I've recovered after an entire summer, that sort of thing. And that actually is what the catalyst was to, to come to Australia. Yeah, quite the event. Gosh, a whole summer out as well. And I mean, that's an important point as well. When you are a guide, like your body is super important. If you're injured, you also can't work like, and that applies to a lot of industries, but especially if you're working outdoors. So yes, the risk management is a, big big part of it both for absolutely for your client but for yourself and your other your your other colleagues yeah absolutely and one thing that's coming to mind actually when we're speaking to you is we've interviewed a whole host of people um either like adventurers or athletes however you want to um, frame it and I would say Kristen correct me if I'm wrong the majority of people we speak to who adventure also race and have like a competitive element to what they're doing Whereas I feel like you, Sol, it's much more about the exploration and the being in nature as opposed to that competition side. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. It's I guess it's from a mindset, a, a very Canadian mindset, which is that the history of Canada is that European explorers came to Canada, had no idea what they were doing, had no idea where they were. And the First Nations people, the native uh, native Canadians, would come and say, "Well, who are you? Where do you? What are you? What are you doing here? Where do you want to go?" And they would say, "Oh, we want to go in the hinterland. We want to go into the interior, into the forest. But you know, this forest is so thick. How do you get by?" And they're like, "Well, get in the canoe. Nobody walks, tries to, you know, bush bash through the forest. Get in the canoe. There's rivers. We'll take you along the river to wherever." And um, so that's very much a Canadian ethos. The whole idea, uh, you know, the winters are long. So something that Canadians look forward to that enjoy the outdoors. One of the iconic things to do is to either do it by yourself or get together with uh, a group of friends. And you go on a canoe trip 
to someplace beautiful and remote. And the bragging rights are if you don't come across any other groups or any other people the entire time you're out there. The longer you're out there, typically, you know, Canadians will take like a 10-day canoe trip, uh, five-day or 10-day, that's thing. The longer you are out there and the longer you don't see anyone else, and it really gives you a sense, when that doesn't happen, it gives you a sense of being either one of those explorers, those early European explorers, or a First Nations person discovering a part of the natural environment for the first time, like you're the first human being to be there. And there's actually a, a bit of um, uh, an etiquette in Canada. You know how they have surf etiquette here. That's the thing. There's an etiquette in Canada when you're camping, which is obviously leave no trace, but also when you're just, you know, getting out of your canoe and taking a break and having some lunch, that sort of thing is not to alter anything, not to pile up, you know, rocks into a little mini cairn, just for the sake of doing that, because then, you know, if it's not a navigational thing, if you're just doing it for the heck of it, then you're actually doing something that is would never occur naturally. And you're ruining it for the next canoeer, the next paddler that's going to come around the corner, having that sense of um, first time discovery. And then suddenly there's this like human created alteration of the, the natural environment. So, yeah, getting back to your question, Sarah, um, yeah, I don't have that competitive streak in me. I think I alluded to it before while, while my, you know, uh, kids on the street were playing um, uh, uh, street hockey, that sort of thing. I'd be off going and exploring in the woods. And, yeah, I guess to me it's, it's very much a stop and smell the roses and what's around the next corner. What's that new vista going to bring? Um, it's really that sense of exploration. So from a, from a working standpoint as a guide, because things are so routine, that exploration kind of comes through from what the clients are, what are they capable of? What, what are you going to ex- explore in terms of how you're going to manage a, 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 a very anxious client and how are they going to do in that thing that they really want to accomplish, um, how is it all going to turn out? Yeah, I love that. Um, I am conscious of time. Is there anything, I mean, Saul, you've been on so many adventures. You have so much experience in this industry. We could talk forever, and I know you and I can talk forever. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to add before we go to our final question? Um, I would say for those people who, because you were in this situation, I remember, Sarah, that you had actually called uh, called Sydney Harbour Kayaks a year before, uh, and I talked to you at length because you were asking, you know, should I get into this, you know, kayak guiding thing? Is this a really viable thing? And I would say to people who are passionate about the outdoors and are thinking, you know, do I want to, can I make a go of this? Just do it. You can even do it at just a, you know, a, a voluntary level or a part-time level or a casual level. And I have a, a number of friends who are like that. They actually work in professional industries or, for instance, work for a law firm. But they get out there every once in a while uh, on a weekend and they, they actually um, take a, a, you know, guide a kayak tour, that sort of thing. Just get out there and do it and see see what, how it feels for you, how it 
works for you and um, that will give you a better idea. But it's definitely an industry. It's, you're not going to become rich in it. You've got to get your riches from the experience side of things. And that time spent, you know, your working life is a big, big chunk of your life. And if you don't enjoy what you're doing, if it's stressing you out, that sort of thing, you really do have to think about taking steps to change things around because that's a big, big section of your life that you are kind of sacrificing. And, you know, we, our society, our Western society is very materially oriented, but time is your most valuable asset. So it's really important to, to go and explore these things and, and, and see if that's something that, that will bring a lot of reward and a lot of, you know, rekindle a lot of passion and, and a lot of satisfaction for you. Yeah. I think it's that progression of hobby, jobby, job, lifestyle. <laughs> so you start out just kind of going, oh, this would be great to make this part of my, you know, everyday thing. Well, I can't commit to it straight away. So maybe I'll do a couple of shifts guiding. So you kind of get paid off to the side, this little jobby thing for you, and then it can turn into a job and then it becomes a lifestyle where it's part of your everyday and that it is who you are as well. Yeah, absolutely. And my mentor, uh, 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 one of uh, the guys I work with a lot of time, he's actually done quite some, some amazing things. Uh, uh, for instance, he's, he actually trains the, um, the Nepalese Gurkhas, which are the elite fighting force in Nepal. They have a program that I guess once this whole COVID thing is closed by, it'll come back again where they fly them out to uh, Western Australia, fly them around in a helicopter. And they say, you know, what locations do you want to train these guys in? You know, high, high level stuff. Um, he's been on a number of outdoor adventure shows. I'll give you an example. He was one of the black uh, clad commandos in a show called SAS Australia that sort of thing. So you can really actually make it quite a lucrative, um, a lucrative thing and, and do uh, quite amazing things. You just have to kind of get out there and market yourself and, um, and like any job network and, and jump at the opportunities when they, when they present themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome advice. I love that. Thank you. So now you, you shared some profound things there. So now I'm going to ask you a really deep and meaningful question. So so to, for context, if you haven't listened to the podcast before, um, I used to coach a group of little girls mountain biking at our local trails here, and they wouldn't be able to make it through the hour session without needing to go to the toilet. So they would typically ask, can they go for a wild wee? So can you please tell us about your wildest wee? Are you being literal there? Like, <laughs> Yeah, tell us about a memorable place that you've peed. This is this is it. This is the question. <laughs> okay, a memorable place that I've peed. Uh, wow, I don't really. It's not something I I focus on a heck of a lot. I usually like enjoy the view or something if I'm having a wild wee. But uh, well, you can tell us about a great view. That counts as well. I think uh, I one comes to mind which I was out surf kayaking I come from a you know a, a bit of a whitewater background coming from Canada so when I came here you know this area doesn't have much in terms of whitewater rivers so I transferred to uh, or adapted to a, a type of uh, kayaking called surf kayaking 
which are the boats are kind of similar to whitewater kayaks, but the bottom is very much like a surfboard with some fins on it. And so I was out whitewater kayaking and there were dolphins, a pot of dolphins appeared and were actually surfing on the waves um, around me, which was spectacular. I'd be surfing along. At first it was a bit, a bit of an alarm because I saw a fin and, you know, automatically think, that's a shark. And then I realized, no, those I can see under the water. Those are dolphins. And they were re- really nice um, surf set. And so I was catching the waves and dolphins were playing around and surfing on the same waves that behind me, in front of me, that sort of thing. There was no way I was going to stop surfing, kayak surfing that session. But I really had to wee badly. <laughs> so normally I would be like, no, oh, no, let's take a break and, you know, go run over to the, uh, you know, the, the toilets at the surf life-saving building, that sort of thing, but not this time. So I peed my kayak. <laughs> I love it. With a pot of dolphins surfing around you. Beautiful. With a pot of dolphins, yeah. Amazing. That's so good. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> okay, so the final question before we say thank you, and this is going to be the hardest question, I think, Sol, is we typically say, like, if people want to follow up with you, where can they find you online? <laughs> This is so oh, first time on Zoom. Online. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, I have a Facebook site, Saul Kamal. So um, people can uh, can kind of see stuff I've done uh, in the past. But yeah, you're you're right. I'm kind of like a, a techno dinosaur. Not much of a self promoter to my own. Um, to my own detriment, because I have an Instagram account as well, which what? I have no idea what the password is for that. Uh, so, did I create it for you? What is this? Um, what's that? I said, did I create this for you? I can't believe you have an Instagram account. That's amazing. <laughs> no, uh, sorry, not Instagram. Um, what's the other one? I do have an Instagram account, but LinkedIn. Oh, I actually okay. have oh. that's the professional, <laughs> the professional one, right? One. That's the okay, the more yeah. business networking one. So yeah. I have a LinkedIn account which I haven't gone to in years, and um, I think I went to it once, and there was like messages for me. I'm like, who are these people that are messaging me? So I'm yeah, that that is true. I'm kind of off the radar. I, I told Sarah years ago, you know, my first laptop was something called an Etch a Sketch. Ah yes, um, and Good old probably a lot. A lot of your listeners probably don't even know what that is, but uh, it's um, it's basically a toy from the 1960s that uh, is is a screen with two dials that you can actually move this stylo, this kind of internal pen, and and do these very rudimentary line drawings with. And that was the height of sophisticated technology for me when when I was growing up. I love it. Well, I'm sure people, if they want to get in touch, either drop us a message and we can reach out to Sol or try and find him on Facebook. That sounds like the best bet. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a really interesting conversation. We really appreciate it, Sol. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Sol. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Awesome. Take care. Stay safe. You too. Thanks for listening to another episode of Into the Wee Hours podcast. To get in touch, you can find us on Instagram at Into the Wee Hours Podcast or email us at Into the Wee Hours Podcast at gmail.com. On Instagram, Sarah is all the gear, nay idea, and that is N A E for all you non Scots people, and Kristen is at Kristen Vaughton. 
To read the show notes or to listen on the website, you can visit intothewearers.com forward slash podcast. And to help support this podcast, you can also head over to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash podcast. Happy adventuring and we will talk to you next time.